This is Language Made Difficult, a discontinuous part of the Specgram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today, in order to engender an amusing discussion, are the rest of the Ling nerds, Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. Bill Spruill. Hi. And Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And also joining us again on the program is Kian Kaufman. Welcome back, Kian. It's an honor and a pleasure. Let's start with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Our theme today is bodily function humor, so keep it classy. <laughs> I've got three language-related items. Two are true and one is false. And you guys have to figure out which is which. And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Item number one, a sternutation is another term for a sneeze. Item number two, paresthesia is the term for numbness in a limb caused by pressure or lack of movement. And item number three, barbarigmi is the term for the growling in the stomach. All right, who'd like to go first? Me. Me, 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 me. If you go, I will. If you go first, you don't get hit. I don't need those things to engender my correctness. So two things. Yep. If you're really sure that you know the answer and you have a really great explanation, you should not go first because the goal is for other people to lose. Oh. And also... <laughs> not the goal. We're in it together. No, it is not enough to win. Others must lose. <laughs> That's the tray I know and love. Yeah. <laughs> And I can't give hints because, you know, others must lose. So <laughs> do what you will. Uh, right. Then I'll go last. But then I'll like I'm copying. And I know this. I know this. I totally know it. You can know it later still, too. Yeah, okay. Because we yeah, might I all wait, know it later. I'll, I'll go first because I don't know it. So a stern mutation, mm -hmm. I think, is pronounced incorrectly. It's actually a stern nutation. And I think it's actually a term that means a severe case of being caught in a storm of falling pecans. Mm. So I don't like that one. Paresthesia is not a term for numbness in a limb. It is actually forgetting to buy a tree for the partridge to sit in <laughs> or the fruit thereof, paresthesia. Yeah, and borborigmai. Did I say that right, Trey? Not quite. Say it for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do it while smiling. It's, um, <laughs> it's barbarigmai. Barbarigmai. That's clearly an Italian sports car. So none of these means <laughs> what they say they mean. But I'm going to go with number two being the false one because fruit trees are naturally numb in the limbs and there's no need for a word to describe that. So I think you just made that one up. Okay. Nice. Who's next? I can make a go at it. I think I've heard Borgberigmi before and it's stuck in my head some because it's kind of onomatopoeic. Mm. So I'm going to believe that's stomach growling. I've seen stern mutation before, but unfortunately, I'm having trouble calling up exactly where I saw it. For paresthesia, pretty much anything with sthesia in it can be sensation. So that part sounds right. But the para part, I would need something like dysthesia for numbness or something like that. Paresthesia is sort of alongside sensation or something. Maybe it's a false sensation. So I'm going to go with paresthesia as being the wrong one because sternutation, it's some sort of sudden thing. I think it could be a sneeze. Okay, so you're going to agree with Keith. <laughs> that is a I wise choice, Bill. I couldn't really tell what he was trying to agree with. So <laughs> I kind of tuned out when it hit pecans because all I could really tell there is he said pecan correctly instead of pecan, which is something I expect to see in a men's room. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Sherry. Okay. <laughs> Thank 
questions. See, that's got to be right. It's totally got to be the right one. Paresthesia sounds like what happens to you if you sit on the plane all the way to Paris without getting up. It's when you can't remember where you are when you land. See, so that one's right. Like I'm thinking of bariatric surgery, which makes me think that Trey is trying. See, if I weren't so suspicious, this would be easier. <laughs> but I am, really fact, are. suspicious. I know, because because I've been betrayed, you know? That engenders suspicion. I was just going to say that betrayed does not engender trust. I mean, I hate to be that way. Especially... Sure, do, you, do you have someone you can talk to about this? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's a personal thing. I, I need, like, a whole language devised just to make me happy. Maybe we can get back to that later. Maybe we'll come to that later. <laughs> I can't help with the betrayal. I mean, my name's right there. <laughs> oh, 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 it's getting worse. I'm quitting. <laughs> Take my notes and go home. So I'm going to go with number three because I'm suspicious. And I know number one is fine, and I believe in number two. And I'm suspicious of number three. So number three. Because Trey. Because Trey. Mm, okay. Now, Kim, would you like to tell everybody the correct answer? <laughs> well, now I'm not sure anymore. This is <laughs> considerable self-doubt. Mm. However, I have seen the word borborygmus before, and I figure it's the singular of borborygmi, and although the stomach does tend to rumble more than once, I'm going to stick with that one because it seems vaguely familiar. Paresthesia I have seen in descriptions for ICD-10, <sighs> The clinical coding system that brought me <laughs> struck by a duck. Who invited her? <laughs> very, very useful descriptions of causes for morbidity and mortality. So sternutation is the only one I haven't heard of. So I'm going to label that one as wrong. Don't, do it. Don't do it. Yes. Don't do it. Think Spanish. It's the pecans. It's the pecans. <laughs> I would listen to Sherry if I were you. Don't do it. It's yeah, well... It's it's don't do it i've gotten this far by not listening to sherry <laughs> gender a little fellow feeling here don't do it man step away no no i'm going to x gender no it well whatever <laughs> i don't believe in sternutation and i'm sticking to it okay well kian i'd like to say thank you for making sure that i get a point this time <laughs> oh. <laughs> so a sternutation is, in fact, another term for a sneeze. What's the Spanish which you allude to? Estornudar. Mm. Estornudar. Estornudar. Okay. Like 98% sure. I believe you 100%. <laughs> and Kian was right that one boborygmus and multiple boborygmi are growling in the stomach. And then I decided this time that I would betray everyone <laughs> or perhaps engender feelings of betrayal by being as tricky as you always accuse me of being. Just changed one letter in the word, didn't you? <laughs> Not quite. Oh. <laughs> I don't know for sure, but Bill actually may have given the right etymology for paresthesia in that it's a false sensation. Is it Adam Lip syndrome? No, paresthesia is not when your limb falls asleep, but when it wakes up. So the pins and needles. Oh. That is a false sensation. I haven't checked. But when your uh, limb falls asleep, it's actually called abdormition. Abdormition. That's a, that's a silly word. That sounds it like is. it should be illegal in Mississippi or something. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> Abdormission. That is an excellent word that I will probably not be able to remember tomorrow. Abdormission. I'm writing it down. Oh, so I'm writing it down oh, so it's something clear to forget later. <laughs> is is borborygmi related to, so it does sound onomatopoetic in the same way that the Greek word for foreigner, barbaroi, is the people who can only say bar, 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 right? Right. Is it related? I thought that was from beards. 
It's bariatric, right? Bariatric surgery, that morphine. B-O-R as opposed to B-I-A-R, but apart from that, that engenders a lot of possibilities. Spelling is just stupid, though. (laughs) Spelling is totally useless. Spelling makes me unhappy. English spelling is based on etymology. It's the only clue we have sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So, barbarigmus is from the Latin, which is pretty much the same. And the Greek is very similar. Barbarigmos. Looks Greek, not Latin. Yeah. Just real quick to answer the question about barbarian. That is from the Proto-Indo-European root barbar, echoic of unintelligible speech of foreigners. So it has nothing to do with having beards. Doesn't seem to. So relying on Spanish isn't always the thing to do. Not not in Greek. Mm, That's true. Is that really the Proto-Indo-European root is identical to the Greek? Barbar? Come on. Uh, Elephant. It has to have some H's in there, (laughs) right, Bill? it, It does not. According to my sources. But yeah, it's Greek barbaros. I think the Latin word for beard did have barb in it or something. I can't remember the case oh. endings and so forth, but there's an expression that says the beard doesn't make the philosopher. <laughs> and it's something like barba non philosophicos est or something. Uh, barba non philosophic something fuck it. <laughs> And I know that probably sounded risque, but it's the Latin word for makes in third person singular. That was an awe. This has got to be the only podcast where this kind of discussion happens. (laughs) Barba non facet philosophum. Okay. I kind of like ending with the verb, but... (laughs) Or just start with it with a comma. Latin lets you do that. Yep. You got to order the comma special because it didn't come with the original language. But <laughs> I only like those illuminated commas with the gold stuff and the fancy. Yeah, but you get it with the medieval expansion pack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The scores. The scores, yes. I got one right, I would like to point out, which brings me up to like 75%, right? Yeehaw. Like 75, except <laughs> more not in the neighborhood, only more like 50. <laughs> it does have a five in it. <laughs> there you go. 85. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're just bad at math because we've only got four <laughs> scores. Do I get a half point for ragging on hipster philosophers in Latin? <laughs> I will give you half an imaginary point. <laughs> Keep track of that, Bill, because you'll forget. I will, because if you get another, they cancel each other out. It's like those imaginary number things. <laughs> no, no. If you get another one, they multiply by each other and they're negative. So ah. be careful. <laughs> That's why we've got absolute values. <laughs> it's all real, man. So Bill is four for four with our new scoring with 100%. And again, thank you, Kian. Uh, you've moved me up to three out of four, so I'm 75%. And then Keith and Sherry are tied with 50%. And again, Kian fell on her sword, so I could move up in the rankings. And the guests have cumulatively 25%, one out of four. <laughs> I think Tim might be joining us next time, so it's good to start Tim way down low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there aren't any that he can miss. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's enough for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Tobias Högberg. Kevin Bickelson's got nothing on me. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Vitor Jarauju. 
Hey, linguists, if your favorite non-linguist didn't get you a copy of the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics for the Holidays, it's never too late to get yourself a gift you will treasure for years to come. The Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics is the most fun a linguist can have with their clothes on, though we have to point out that while reading naked is not the unmarked condition, neither is it infelicitous. Available in both hard copy and electronic formats. See specgram.com book for more information. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. This day, I begin to give you new knowledge about a new good language. You can understand all things, and you do not use many words. This new language can make everything good, because we can talk only about good things. And because of this, many minds can rest in a better way. This new language, Tokipona, can make people better. Sonia person make this new good language many times past. At the time you begin to speak this new language, the mind in your head can become big. And all people can become big and close because we can all understand many same things. So give me your good thinking about this good language. Trey person, Kian person, <laughs> person, Bill person, what good thinking rests now in your mind? I think I'm dumber than I was five minutes ago. Oh, are you happier? <laughs> what was that word for numb? <laughs> I have obdermission of the brain. <laughs> it doesn't gender that. Such happiness. So the idea is that if you have this language, um, which takes you 30 hours to learn, so I'm told, only that 30, I think, is great. a good, that's great. That is points in its awesome, cute little favor, right? <laughs> 30 hours to learn 120 extremely freakishly polysimous words, <laughs> <laughs> using which you are supposed to be able, in a mighty puff of superior worth awesomeness, <laughs> you will change your mindset, be able to talk only about 1,984 magnificent things in the universe, although you can take that number because that number is too big. You have one too many according to the, the awesome creator of this language. If you happen to be a bilingual anything Tokipona speaker, you will switch into Tokipona when you just want to say happy things. So if you were, for example, to speak only Tokipona, you would have only happy thoughts. Yeah. So there. I'm pretty sure that means I'm allergic to this language. <laughs> I don't think you say allergic in this language. So there you go. You can't even say that. <laughs> so Sherry, I want to know, did you go hang out on the online discussion forums? Because it seems like you made some real progress in <laughs> learning this communicative strategy. I did. You know, the only thing I'd left out was I didn't like mess around with any of that tedious phonology part. <laughs> <laughs> Just skip that. Yeah. The actual word forms. I thought that was too much to ask. <laughs> I get the impression just hearing about this that Someone watched the episode of Ren and Stimpy with the Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy song and didn't realize it was satirical. <laughs> okay, and to be fair, if you insist that I be fair, which I don't think you should, but to be fair, I was able to construct the phrase that roughly means the orifice of an uncute animal. <laughs> so maybe you can't say bad things. Oh, so they do have an unmorpheme, right? There's a negative particle, and there is a whole lexical item that means uncute animal. What? They have 120 lexical items, and one of them means uncute animal? Yeah. Or... Yeah, because it's supposed to cover, like, the natural basics, right? So there's no monomorphemic word for, oh, I don't know, cordwainer. 
<laughs> something. But there's a set of words for a couple different kinds of vegetables and a couple different kinds of animals, one of them being the uncute ones, which are reptiles and such. Yeah. Did you have trouble finding the list? I did. I thought that was kind of weird for an auxiliary language that's supposed to engender this feeling of community in the world and everyone being able to speak to everyone else. I read actually in one post in a message board that the words are even from the creator in the public domain. And yet they were really hard to find, which is not a good way to spread the love there. You know, normally we can discount the superior wharf hypothesis, but you got to kind of wonder what if you learn this language and then you can't figure out how to post things on the internet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's no word for computer. Yeah, I looked for the word for computer, and I didn't find it. There seems to be a general tool. Yeah, there's tool. Yeah, they have a word for tool. and You, you can, can have, yeah. like, mind tool or something like that, I suppose. Yeah. One other thing, since you mentioned the phonology earlier, this is a little bit kind of cool. It has a very lax pronunciation, mm -hmm. so it makes it easy for speakers of different languages to be able to speak it. Mm. But if the word list is in the public domain... Then instead of Tokipona, maybe we could come up with our own language called Dogiboma <laughs> <laughs> and actually put it out on the internet for free for people to use. Mm. Yeah, there's a Kindle book that you can buy, which somehow I forgot to do. Yeah. Because <laughs> I didn't but, have the Tokipona word for money to spend on this project, so I didn't do it. I think we ought to make a language called Bridewell Darby's. <laughs> <laughs> So th there are apparently people that actually learn to speak this language, right? There are about 100 of them, apparently. 123, one for each word. <laughs> one for each word, yeah, yeah. So I couldn't help noticing the similarity between this and natural semantic meta-language. Are you guys familiar with that? Well, of course we are. Good. But why don't you describe it for our listeners? Well, they all know already, so I'm done now. No, so natural semantic meta-language tries to break things down into semantic primitives. Wikipedia shows me 61 semantic primitives in somebody's version of this, right? It's very similar, except that they're not necessarily single words. So like one of them might be there is, or a short time is one. But the idea is you can decompose all words, I guess, into these semantic mm -hmm. primitive meanings, right? So it's a similar kind of concept, right? Except that the semantic primitives aim to be atoms, and yep. this language is aiming for molecules, and it's aiming for certain types of cuddly, warm chemical conceptual bonds that are not to be broken. So it wants to have things you can't say. In fact, it's rather proud of having that. Mm -hmm. So you can, in fact, say orifice of an uncute animal, which perversely, I really had to spend some time thinking up things like orifice of an uncute <laughs> animal, just because I felt like I was being defied. <laughs> like you cannot say rude and dismissive things. And I, I had to make sure I could. Yeah, that's human nature. That's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> I think you're only able to do that because we've always been at war with Eurasia. <laughs> <laughs> and it's double plus uncute. <laughs> I didn't look to see if the word for Eurasia was the same word for the uncute animal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like the fact that it recognizes that all human societies, even before there was any surplus food or before there was reliable shelter, really did worry about which animals were cute. 
those hunter-gatherers, you know, they're talking about the cute animals. It's super necessary, man, because it wants me to be happy. It got that part right about how it wants me to be happy. Yeah, I think we should not even have a word for uncute animal, really. It's interesting, too, how this happy, warm, cuddly languages system of conventionalized metaphor internalizes all the old, bad, hierarchical things. For instance, floor means defeat, head means control. So there we are right back in the mindset of better and top and bottom and worse and all those things. We just can't talk about them as clearly. I thought it was interesting that if they're only going to have 120 some words, right? They have five color terms. Curiously, natural semantic metalanguage has zero, (laughs) at least in the list I'm looking at. I guess those aren't important semantic primes, but they are things that people want to talk about, especially people looking at pictures of cute cats. <laughs> so it's interesting to me that the word for hunt and the word for gather are the same. But I think if we're all going to feel good about ourselves, we shouldn't be hunting even the uncute animals, should we? Shouldn't we all just eat the mushrooms and the other kinds of plants? The mushroom is grouped in with some kinds of plants or other, which bothers me, of course. That has to bother everybody. Because <laughs> mushrooms are uncute plants. There should be a separate word for that. Can you even say poison? I don't know. I have the whole... Let me. Because it would be kind no, of important no. if you're gathering mushrooms to know which ones can make you die or which <laughs> ones can make you super happy. <laughs> Do they have a word for an alarm? Because you could use that, you know, it's a toxin. Oh! <laughs> the thing about mushrooms is you don't need to be able to explain which ones are poisonous because you could just demonstrate <laughs> by dying. You could feed one to an uncute animal and see what happens. <laughs> And not be able to describe it. Well, you know, you could just point it and gasp because there are several interjections, which I thought was nice. (laughs) (laughs) The next time I have 30 hours during which to do absolutely nothing useful, I think this is worth a go. I don't know. This seems like the worst part of Esperanto (laughs) raised to a power of 10 because the problem with Esperanto is anything can be a noun or a verb or an adjective depending on the ending you put on it. And some of those meanings are extremely unclear what that would be. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is much more. This is just much more. Double plus ungood. I sort of like that. Just move the word around. Who cares? Oh, and I also really like the fact that it's got 10 syntactic rules. Bam. And there's a list of them. And I think that should we ever grow weary of formal syntax, <laughs> this could destroy it. And I think that would be worth the 30 hours, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't we just use... 123 translation equivalents and talk happy and warm and cute to each other in languages we already know instead of memorizing vocabulary? Well, we could just be nice to each other, but that seems a little extreme, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's uncalled for. (laughs) One advantage of this over natural semantic meta-language, though, is natural semantic meta-language is kind of deceptive because the name of it tells you that it should be about language. Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So it should be a small set of primitives that let you describe lexical categories, like (laughs) noun and verb, or speech acts, that kind of thing. Instead of describing actual meanings of actual words. Right. Right. So it's really more of a natural semantic language 
with natural in quotes, because if it were really natural, you wouldn't have to read the whole book about it. <laughs> I feel There's like more than one book. I feel like just sort of holding the lexicon here in my hands, like I'm doing right now, is causing some kind of effect. I don't want to say what kind of effect, but it's definitely causing an what effect. What is it engendering? It's engendering a glow. I feel like I'm getting some kind of glow, though it might just be a rash. I'm not totally <laughs> sure. That might be the mushrooms. <laughs> It might be. I, you know, I've got to find what mushrooms are grouped with. I now absolutely must know what mushrooms are grouped with. There it is. Mushrooms, fire, and couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> What's a puppy vegetable? Oh. oh what? I'm sorry. Is that like I'm a dog It said pulpy. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> 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 like puppy willows. Puppy vegetables, yes. <laughs> All wow. the puppy vegetables. Oh, my God. There's catkins and then there's dogkins. <laughs> So happy. Puppy vegetables. No, mushrooms go in with fruit and pulpy vegetables. Oh. That's that category. It has nothing to do with evil or gross or poison, unfortunately. So I know this isn't natural. (laughs) It's just somebody's madness. Grouping mushrooms with fruits and puppies. That's just crazy talk. (laughs) By the way, because if this is a language, a real language, it is therefore a living language. Therefore, I, as a not fluent at all speaker, but might be someday speaker of this language, am now changing pulpy to puppy in my particular copy of the lexicon. <laughs> so I can have puppy vegetables. <laughs> Boom. Done. <laughs> puppy vegetable. Puppy. That will be your idiolect. It yes. will be. It will be. <laughs> I did want to take issue with one of the claims made in the article about this language, claiming that it's the world's smallest language. And this is clearly not true, and it's blown away by the languages of the what's and the haze from the uh, 1990s TV documentary series, The Tick. (laughs) Those languages have only one eponymous word each. Wow. What, what? What, 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 what? It's like the corn language. It's like the corn language. Yeah, there is a language called corn, which has (laughs) one word with 10,000 different tones. (laughs) Hate to Sherry in a dream one night. (laughs) Back in graduate school, she awoke and said unto us, Behold, behold, the corn language, and I will speak to you in corn. Corn, 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 corn. It's just a different tone for each word. You just have to memorize. It's no big deal. You're into tones, Keith. You should be able to do this, right? I think somebody well, wrote an article like that in Specgram once, and maybe it was Trey. I'm pretty sure that did happen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe There's I mean, also the language of orangutan librarians, which apparently is just ook. Ook. Yeah, and I'm afraid that reptiles and amphibians are grouped together and uncute animals, so I'm afraid this really can't be all that natural. It's making me sad the more I read. Not that I didn't read this before. Of course, I did all of my homework and memorized this absolutely, but, you know, I forget. because. Well, you didn't have 30 hours, so. I did not have 30 hours. (laughs) No, I didn't. I clearly need some kind of... I wonder if I get some kind of grant from my department to fund me in learning. I mean, this is an endangered language, right? It's like a gender international understanding. Right. There's only 100 speakers. And everybody in the university knows if you want to make progress, you have to go on a retreat. <laughs> like, I can't tell. Where would I go? It's Canadian, right? Is that where it's from? That wouldn't be so bad. Hmm. Hmm. This is a bad time of year to be heading to Canada. <laughs> So the other thing wrong with this, the the lexicon at least has word order problems because the noun Ali is translated here. The choices are everything, life, and the universe. 
which clearly (laughs) that's wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely wrong. That's definitely wrong. So I'm wondering, would this language be an improvement or not if it were required for, say, uh, lawyers or university administrators or (laughs) others who, you know, make their living by circumlocution? Imagine how much longer a contract would be if lawyers had to try to combine these to split the hairs they want to split. Right, right. Because you're not going to change what they want to say. Yeah, of course. And they get paid by the hour for how long it takes them to write things or read them or argue about them, right? That is brilliant. What we do is we write a grant and we talk about the business model based on this language. We get all the university administrators to learn it. And then we put them in a room and we close the door and we walk away and we say, discuss. And it will take them so long to come out that everything will just be better. (laughs) I think you actually thought of a way to make vision statements worse. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of thought she was advocating for genocide, and I was trying to decide if that was good or bad in Tokipona. It was only administrators that I was after. Not that big a deal. Yeah, right. Yeah, but think of the study sessions after the vision statements have been produced. Think of the glossy binders with pictures of Stepford people looking happy and shaking hands on the cover. I mean, it's it's going to be awful. <laughs> I wonder if you would group vision statement with the cute animals or the uncute animals. Pulpy vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> the orifices, I think. I think that's the orifice of the pulpy vegetable, isn't it? The thing from which the mission statement emerges. <laughs> that would be the puppy vegetable. <laughs> you lobotomize the puppy. Hey, now, be nice. Puppy with flux. You rephrased it as an emission statement, basically. <laughs> hmm. That must make over. Could also have an obdur mission statement. Oh. Which makes you fall asleep or at least go numb. <laughs> they do that already. Yeah. I mean, seriously, don't they? Anybody got anything else? We've already used way too many words to talk about this language. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of comparing it to my dissertation, but I decided not to. (laughs) And for that, we are grateful. (laughs) Pony, pony, a pona, 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 everybody. Pona, pona. Pona, pona. Which I think is the part of Toki Pona that is the good part. I'm pretty dang sure. Pona, pona. It is everything that's good in the world. Pineapples, bananas, and cute kittens. We can rest assured knowing that our attitude towards this language can be perfectly described in Ithkuil. <laughs> <laughs> Which is some DMV employee who's trying to reinvent polysynthesis using phonemes as morphemes. Mm. Apparently. Arguably, there are the phonemes, but okay. No. <laughs> Stop it. Girl says that every week. Yes, and it's actually not even remotely applicable here, but it was fun to say. <laughs> And the one thing I will say about Tokipona is it would be really, really difficult to talk about archiphonemes in this language. Yep. Which might be a good thing. Yeah. Yep. It's yep. hard to talk about archiphonemes in any language. <laughs> and there's it's a good not. For you that. just sort of let things flow. All conversations naturally bend towards archiphonemes. <laughs> <laughs> it's even better than giant robots, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> tiny giant robots. <laughs> <laughs> all right with that insightful comment we will bring this conversation to a close and return after a word from our sponsor 
Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Syntactician's Deli. The Syntactician's Deli invites you to celebrate the opening of our 47th outlet in the Graduate Student Lounge of the Linguistics Department at the University of Missouri. Move on over to one of our licensed locations and enjoy a subjacency sandwich or our latest specialty, the recursive Reuben. The Syntactician's Deli. Our waiting lines are always short and they never cross. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Rasmus Rask Society for the appreciation of Rasmus Rask and all things related to Rasmus Rask because we really like saying Rasmus Rask. He certainly was a good-looking fellow, but by Jove his name, Rasmus Rask, is fun to say. And yes, all of that is in the name of our Rasmus Rask-loving society, including this bit. Contact Butch McBastard, care of Speculative Grammarian, for more information about Rasmus Rask. Or, just look up Rasmus Rask on Wikipedia. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Tobias Hugberry. Kevin Bickelson can suck it. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Today we're returning to one of our common themes, which is trying to convince people that linguistics is good for something. (laughs) One of the things linguistics, of course, is claimed to be good for is describing other languages. And, of course, one of the languages we frequently describe is English. In fact, we describe that so frequently, it's almost amazing. But the rules we use to describe it in linguistic theories, while manifold and glorious in their either simplicity or complexity, it's kind of hard to tell the difference sometimes, don't necessarily translate to teaching that easily. But, of course, there are a number of rules that have been made up simply so that you can teach language and that purport to at least partially mirror what native speakers actually do instead of what they should be doing. One of these that students frequently encounter towards the end of the beginning level in ESL classes is a rule that tells you what order to put adjectives in. Typically, you put adjectives in different categories like shape or size or that kind of thing, and then try to give somebody a rule so that they say things like a large red book instead of a red large book, or a heavy red book instead of a red heavy book. In other words, say things that English speakers think sound a little more natural. Unfortunately, this rule in some texts is called the Royal Order of Adjectives, thus ensuring that no students actually want to learn it. (laughs) But the idea is, if you have, oh, seven or nine categories, and you want to use multiple of them in a noun phrase, you can follow the sequence they give you. One iteration of this has opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material, and purpose in the sequence. Purpose there is like frying pan. Okay, it's a pan for frying. Now, of course, as linguists, we need to look at these things and evaluate them. I know when students ask me about order of adjectives, I frequently instead point them at an article by Stephanie Wolf from 2003. It's a multifactorial corpus analysis. That one is extremely useful. Part of my evidence is they never ask me that question again. (laughs) (laughs) Do they ever come back to class? Um, Sometimes. But it goes into an admirable bout of detail on various factors that can affect the order of adjectives. There are multiple of them. For example, length can be important, just how long the adjective is. Whether the adjective is something that requires you to, at some level, compare things or not. 
the claim is if I use an adjective like red, if you know English, that's just a kind of range of colors that something just has. Where if I say it's heavy, I'm thinking it's heavy qua something, whatever qua means, which I don't, in fact, specifically know, but you say it there. (laughs) Thank thank you, Wittgenstein. If you look at these factors, it turns out that multiples of them can affect the sequence at the same time. We can, as linguists, for example, tell our students the things that linguists frequently tell our students. On the one hand, it's much more complicated than you think it was going to be. On the other hand, knowing the rules is not going to help you that much, so just keep reading. But I thought I would check with the rest of you to see what your experience was with these kinds of rules. I mean, is the multifactorial approach better? Is the more formal syntactic approach better where you just tell them, figure out how many binary branchings are between the adjective and the noun, and that will tell you how far away to put it. (laughs) Or is the royal order as royally useful as they say it is, or just a royal pain somewhere? Well, I will tell you as someone who has actually taught this in the past, complete with spiffy little worksheets and a little check sheet. Uh, Yeah, they were beautiful. I will tell you absolutely that this sort of thing engenders sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I have no evidence that any of my students ever did any of this outside of the worksheet area of their brains. And besides, it's really not very often that I say bright red sunshine filled uh, computer room. I just did. And that was maybe the first time. And everybody's noun phrases, but Keith's are shorter than that. (laughs) (laughs) One of Wolf's findings was that out of a 10 million or so word corpus, I think there were 400 something examples of three adjectives in a row. Now, granted, if you have two adjectives, you still have to put them in order, but it's not like you're going to be running out of your set of categories that soon. I think that this idea that this is about order is really missing an opportunity. I would like to see this as something about underlying forms. Um, So I think that where we could get some mileage out of this is to see that any noun that's got adjective modifiers probably has at least one adjective in each one of these categories underlyingly. And then sometimes people forget or whatever the reason is that the uh, surface form doesn't come out the same. So I did a little thought experiment and I considered a noun phrase which had only two adjectives originally, colorless and green. Uh Um, And I was trying to think what the underlying form must have been. So I think it's probably something like insightful, big, old, long, colorless, green, Bostonian, ethereal, linguistic ideas. Something like that is probably what Chomsky was really trying to get at, but he had a performance error. Not everything made it to the surface. I like the idea that by that analysis, most of what we say is performance error, which I think is really kind of great for all the psycholinguists out there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It gives an unfettered scope for research. I do think almost everything we say on this podcast is some sort of error. (laughs) It's not error. It's richness of the base. (laughs) (laughs) I actually like this kind of thing. I'm sure that Bill, the paper you were talking about, does find other factors that would cause the adjectives to be reordered. I mean, especially things like length. But I still like this because I'm sure you guys remember Donald Rumsfeld's infamous verbal diarrhea on knowns and unknowns. Mm -hmm. But the one category he admitted were the unknown knowns, right? Uh 
I know I love the unknown knowns in linguistics because they're actually pretty common. And pointing out to someone like a native speaker of English who's never heard this rule, but in fact they use it. And if you use, you know, simple examples, they see that it's true, right? That you do say the big red book and not the red big book. I think that's really cool. And it's a great way to introduce people to our fascinating, big old, fuzzy edge, colorless green, academic, symbolic, paper, and gendering field of study. Or perhaps I should say our paper and gendering, symbolic, academic, colorless green, fuzzy edge, old, big, fascinating field of study. Or not. If you want to keep going with that, Wolf <laughs> does make reference to a 1978 paper that's got 13 categories. So you could add speed in there. Oh, cool. Yeah. So both my example and Keith's early example indicate that too many adjectives probably is not a good thing. It just engenders confusion to have them all piled on top of each other like that. It does seem to engender I'm confusion. I'm telling you, it all comes back to Tokipona, doesn't it? If you just get rid of all that mess, then you don't have to bother not saying it. If you only have one category, you don't need to order it. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of languages get by without adjectives at all. That's true. So English has some sort of a adjective diarrhea, right? How could you need this many categories? <laughs> then you have to order the nouns, and that would really engender sleep. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I couldn't help but think as I was reading the article about this was that if this is something that has to be taught to people who are learning English, that means that other languages don't have the same order. Does that mean that English speakers, when we learn another language, if we're still using this rule that we order adjectives in other languages, that gives us some sort of stereotypical English sound to the way we talk because our adjectives are ordered in this sort of strict way? I have seen arguments that there are similar ordering principles in at least some other languages, but as is commonly the case in linguistics, I remember the discussions being about exotic languages like French and Spanish. <laughs> that could simply be an aerial feature, but... <laughs> Were they great, big, sophisticated, wonderful, useful arguments? <laughs> I don't remember them in enough detail. <laughs> I seem to remember the immortal R.M.W. Dixon hey, wait, doing wait, an article. Wait, wait, wait. What order do you want to put those initials in? <laughs> W.M.R.? Whatever. J.R.R. Tolkien, I don't know. Anyway, talking about Australian Aboriginal languages and making some sort of generalization across the many languages he'd studied, including Australian Aboriginal languages, that the things that tended more to be closed class cross-linguistically tended to occur closer to the noun. So there may be something more than just romance going on here, for what that's worth. Hmm. The Wolf article talked about that, and I think it was nominal character or something. Here we go. Mm. that maybe things that were more nouny came close to the noun. Mm. And that turns out not to hold up very well. Mm. What's more nouny? Whatever you say. Materials is one of the things that is close, I is see. more concrete. But I think some of it was also things that it's hard to make comparative because mm. you can't normally make nouns comparative. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind I of thing. It says very verby, right? Mm. Paring knife, hunting dog. Mm. Yep. Mm. Mm. Hmm. Nouny is a very good adjective, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where does that go in this order? Nouny. And does it go in the same slot as verby? Right. <laughs> and adjectival. It's kind of a nouny, verby, timey-wimey. <laughs> Here we go. There's kind of a listing of factor loading, how much the factors buy you in terms of correctly predicting where things go if you've got two adjectives before the noun. Yeah. Okay. And the three with the best ratings were affective load, which has to do with kind of what that royal order of adjectives was calling opinion or stance, right? Mm -hmm. Stance! It yes, first. stance. 
whether you have to implicitly do a comparison. So what we might call quaness. <laughs> Anything that engenders quaness is okay with me. Yes, or quiety. Quality. No, quiety. <laughs> quiety. Yeah, quiety. All what? right. Quiddity. Yeah. Then a factor called subobj, and I forget what that is, but it's not subject and object. Oh. Okay. The two that were the least useful were semantic closeness yeah. and nominal character, which was actually nouniness. I'm sure I could come up with things that were less useful than that. <laughs> <laughs> the three in the middle, which were kind of, yeah, they're of some use, included length. But they also included the general frequency of the adjectives, mm. where mm -hmm. the things that are more frequent in general, I think, tend to come further away from the noun. Mm. And noun-specific frequency, which is basically a collocation measure mm. for the noun itself, which, of course, was predicting that it would be closer to the noun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Now, I don't know to what extent that's kind of circular at one level, but at exactly. any rate, it was in there. At what point did this explanation begin to spin? I think it escapes circularity largely in the way it's defining these. Mm. The article is very careful about defining how they're using the terms and how they measure things. Mm. Yeah, I think it's accurate to say what we just did, which is that explanations like that engender silence. <laughs> <laughs> the royal order of adjectives sort of approach is very good for students that are worrying about this and feel better when they have a rule to look at mm. and feel supported by it while they're actually kind of internalizing some of these orders by frequent exposure. Right. Right. But of course, the downside is worksheets don't really teach people how to talk. They're just worksheets. Worksheets teach people how to sit in the classroom and take up some classroom time. <laughs> arguably giving them the rule, heads off some false hypotheses. Fair enough. So it's kind of like, you don't want to spend too long on it, but if you don't give them a kind of big picture view that's codified in some way they can get to consciously, then they might come up with all sorts of weird guesses. And then you come back two years later and it's all merge and binary branching or something <laughs> weird. <laughs> I think though the solution to this problem is this. You just sort your syllabus by the kinds of things the students are going to actually need first. And then you would never get to this. <laughs> <laughs> In the article, maybe getting away from the royal order of adjectives for a moment, they did also mention the I before E except after C rule mm -hmm. and how it doesn't work. And they claim that there are 44 words that follow the rule and 923 that don't. And I also like the I before E except after C rule. I don't know why. Maybe it only helps native speakers. But as a kid, I never got confused about things like the examples that they were giving, like being and there and ate, because they have a more relevant feature. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, being ends in ING. So, of course. Right. That's obvious. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, and there are other things like client, just the way you say, it. I mean, client, right? So it's two syllables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for the kinds of words that I had trouble spelling, the rule was actually helpful most of the time as a kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that may be the case with the royal order of adjectives, that if you don't have any better thing to go on, like you're familiar with the construction or something, it's something to fall back on. It's a useful crutch. Yeah. That engendered less conversation than I thought it might. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking in terms of useful things to tell students. 
and how much time it will take them to use whatever you teach them. If you give them all these different kinds of tools, they can either go find that worksheet where you've got that royal order listed and see how their example fits or does not fit. Or they could just go type it in to COCA, right? And be done with it. Mm -hmm. Go, oh, that occurs and that doesn't. Okay, done. Or type it into Google and see how many hits it engenders. Well, that's even easier, yeah. (laughs) But what if you're using an adjective like prognathus? It's going to be hard to find that in Coca. <laughs> because there are no other adjectives you can use with it, really. A lovely little old prognathus platypus, you know. What? Well, like, say you're going to use it with tessellated or rugose. <laughs> I don't feel like I have an instinct about whether it's like a rugose prognathus creature or a prognathus rugose creature. I'm. Oh. I'm apparently unable to access my intuitions on that. Then I think you just have to spit out the stressed syllables maximally and let it go. That one all comes down to phonology, I think. I hope you're not telling your students these words. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you need it for basic reading. Don't you give students like Lovecraft in the classroom? Is, I'm sure that's on the academic word list. I, I'm sure it is. I think where this royal order might be useful is intro linguistic students to give them a hypothesis to test and then to talk about, like Sherry's saying, when you got an example that doesn't fit, why not? Are there some places where it breaks down and are there some places where it does tell you something, but, you know, you can switch the order and then you've made a compound or something, you know, that sort of shows some structural change going on. So I think it might be useful for linguistics 101. If you're focusing people on style and the kind of interface of linguistics and literary language, you can ask general things like, how often does poetry violate this Mm -hmm. compared to how often does prose do that in some samples? I mean, that's something easily checkable. Fortunately, that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. (laughs) Thanks to our guest, Kian, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds. A pure joy, believe me. Join us next time when we investigate lonely linguists who have discovered that all of their multilingual acquaintances are actually false friends. Oh, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> One could even say that abdormition engenders paresthesia if you <gasps> wish to. It does. I think that is correct. Not during the break. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good place for that whole sentence. That was a fine sentence. I, <laughs> I give you all my guest points. All <laughs> All negative two of them? (laughs) Those are the ones that are yours. Penny, demi, semi, point. (laughs) And also joining us again on the program is Kian Kaufman. Welcome back, Kian. It's an honor and a pleasure. (laughs) Didn't you find it hazardous the last time? (laughs) (laughs) It engendered, I thought, a little bit of contempt on your part last time. (laughs) That'll happen, yeah. What advice would you give someone taking their comprehensive exams? We'll drink more rum. This is just, I'm going to have to put this down because I keep looking at this list and I keep thinking, whoa. (laughs) Welcome back to Speculative Grammarian, everyone. Okay, it's called Language Made Difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Bill doesn't call it that. He calls it Speculative Grammarian. (laughs) It's it's Speculative Grammarian, the audio version. Speculative Grammarian's podcast, Language Made Difficult. I'll say it for him. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. I should translate Language Made Difficult into Toki Pona. And not oh, po- yeah, please. Yeah, I'll work on it. Toki Made Not Pona. <laughs> Witness the Apollonianism. Sorry, that didn't really have much what? punch to it, did it? <laughs> <laughs>
but it engender a good deal of confusion. Ah, okay. We'll just all nod knowingly. Mm. Yeah, we'll all nod knowingly. Um, yes, Bill. <laughs> all right, settle. Go. I read that on, you know, the internet, so it so must, it must be, be true. true. Yeah, I've heard of that. That's a 50%. Once you hear of that, it stays heard. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in New Hampshire, if a community has fewer than 100 voters, they say less than 100 voters, but fewer (laughs) than 100 voters, because we're not weighing them, they can open their polls at midnight. And yes, I just had a prescriptivist moment. I must have found a better article because mine says fewer than 100 voters. Before we make all of our listeners go completely numb, uh, (laughs) I got nothing. (laughs) There's your problem.